Freedom, love, justice. Three ideas our world loves dearly. But how well do we understand what it is that we love? And is it possible that our love of these things is leading us to places we do not really wish to go? In this series, we open up these issues in light of the Bible. In the Gospel of Jesus, we discover how these ideas have meanings that are much deeper than we could ever imagine. They show us the richness and beauty of what God has called us to in Christ. Hi, my name's Caitlin and the first Bible reading comes from Genesis chapter 2 verses 15 to Genesis chapter 3 verses 7 and that's on page 2 of the Pew Bibles. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Hi, my name's Emily, and join with me as we read from John 8. 31 to 38, page 1060. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, 
and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we will be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me, because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do not and you do what you have heard from your father. Oh, good evening, everybody. Excuse me while I just move this lectern. Um, as Roger said, we do begin a new series today. Um, so let me pray again and ask for God's blessing. Uh, father, we do ask you to speak to us and to teach us to live in this world and to live our lives uh, anew and in the way that you call us to through your son Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, most Thursdays, <coughs> uh, the staff team of our church uh, have lunch together. If you're ever around on a Thursday and you want to get in on it, it's, it's quite nice. It's generally a very pleasant time once we get settled. Uh, yet the decision-making process is horrific. We leave the office only to stop about 50 metres away on Church Street because we don't know where we're going. Uh, we are paralysed by our freedom. The array of culinary choices is overwhelming. And while sometimes this can end up leading to an interesting meal, as often as not, it prevents us from making the best choice, which is to go to Janet's Pies. Our task this evening is to think about freedom. This idea that we value so much and that indirectly has filled our lives with a multitude of choices about everything from careers to frozen yogurt shops. Shops, mind you, not just flavours. Frozen yogurt, this is Newtown Festival. We're considering freedom because it is an idea of enormous importance in our culture. Um, it's really one of our great loves as a culture. Uh, and it lies at the heart of what we feel is good about our way of life. We feel that freedom is really one of the great achievements of Western democratic societies. It also plays a central role in our thinking about what the good life is all about. And yet freedom is also an idea that is more complex than we often assume. What freedom actually means and what it is to truly be free are questions that turn out to be more elusive than we might expect. Moreover, they're questions that the Bible speaks about profoundly and in ways that are strikingly different to the answers we often give. And so it is the path of wisdom, I think, to take a few moments to think carefully about freedom and allow ourselves to at least consider whether it is possible that our age has misunderstood what it truly means. 
Well, there's an outline in your uh, service sheets that you got on the way in, and that'll be helpful. There'll be a few passages up on the screen, but um, it'd be great to have that in front of you. Uh, And I want to set out, this is point one, from what is, I think, the central way of thinking about freedom in our culture. About 150 years ago, uh, the British political philosopher John Stuart Mill penned his famous work On Liberty. It was a work animated by a fear of tyranny, whether a tyranny exercised by the government or just by social pressures and prejudices. And the prevailing forces of society, he thought, worked to compel people, this is a quote, to conform to its notions of personal as of social excellence. And against this encroaching social pressure, social totalitarianism, John Stuart Mill called for the dogged defence of individual liberties. There's a quote on your outline and on the screen. The only freedom, he wrote, the only freedom which deserves the name is that of pursuing our own good in our own way, so long as we do not attempt to deprive others of theirs or impede their efforts to obtain it. Each is the proper guardian of his own health, whether bodily or mental and spiritual. Mankind are greater gainers by suffering each other to live as seems good to themselves than by compelling each to live as seems good to the rest. Now these words published in 1859 still seem, I suspect, very reasonable to many of us. This is a view of freedom that has got into the bones of our culture and is now as familiar as an old family dog lying on the sofa. Freedom, that is, is about individuals being able to do their own thing, providing it doesn't hurt anybody. People are responsible for themselves, and so they should be allowed to make their own choices. Furthermore, many of us, just like Mill, feel that the task of government is essentially to protect this, and to not get in the way of it. Good government does not impose values upon individuals, but creates space for people to do their own thing, by and large. Now, this is the view of freedom that makes it hard for many people to understand why anyone could have an in-principle opposition to, say, euthanasia or same-sex marriage. By in principle, I mean putting aside for the moment issues of whether, say, euthanasia can be permitted in such a way to prevent abuses and unconsented to killings. Putting aside those issues. Although, just by the way, Netherlands has been trying this for a while and it's not at all obvious that it is possible to do that. But that's not what this sermon is about. But if you put aside those issues, how could anybody object to these practices? You know, don't people have the right to do what they want with themselves as long as it's not hurting others? Shouldn't we respect that freedom? This is the dominant view of freedom in our culture. Freedom is about individuals and it's about self-determination. Freedom means the freedom of the individual to make her own choices, to exercise her will in whatever direction she chooses. The freedom, as Noam Chomsky has nicely put it, to go our own way if we choose. It is freedom primarily as freedom from things, freedom from restrictions and constraints 
Freedom from other people's agendas, from expectations and traditions. Freedom from limits. Mill's vision of freedom still rings powerfully in our ears. And it's not all bad, as I hope this sermon will say. There's some good things about this. And yet, the 150 years that have passed since he wrote these words ought to also give us pause for reflection. For ours, as we noted at the beginning, ours is a world in which Mill's desires have, to a large extent, been realised. We largely enjoy today the freedoms he wanted to protect. And yet, it's not at all obvious that the great benefits which this seemed to Mill to promise, it's not at all obvious that they have come about. Two features of our world deserve to be noticed. First, our age is arguably no less threatened by pressure to conform than Mill's was, right? Mill lamented that, as he saw it, there is in the world at large, this is a quote, there is in the world at large an increasing inclination to stretch the powers of society over the individual, both by the force of opinion and by that of legislation. The tendency, he observed with, with, with dismay, the tendency of all the changes taking place in the world is to strengthen society and diminish the power of the individual. Now, these same observations could be made just as easily today. In fact, they are being made. The Australian philosopher Clive Hamilton has recently written a book called The Freedom Paradox, in which he laments the way our culture is characterised by a horrible conformity. With soul-destroying monotony, he says, we pursue a vision of the good life that is defined by consumption. We exercise our free choices in amazingly the same direction, in pursuit of a view of happiness that is all about buying stuff. And then we flatter ourselves that it's all an expression of our freedom, our unique personal self-creation, so much so that nobody seems to notice the irony of the fact that Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way, is played at every second funeral. It's the same irony as the person who feels pretty pleased that their beautiful Facebook profile demonstrates their amazing uniqueness, forgetting that it is also a Facebook profile, simultaneously a near-perfect emblem of conformity. Now, just as Mill did, we might lay the blame for that at the feet of a grand machinery of social coercion, that's actually the route that Clive Hamilton takes. He says the problem is the market and its manipulative advertising industry, which turns every aspect of personal expression into something you can buy and that we are uh, nearly powerless to resist. We could do that. And we could say that our conformity is just the product of oppressive forces outside us that we need to be freed from. Yet there's something a bit funny about doing that, isn't there? Because, of course, the machinery of social conformity in our day is actually a little bit different to what it was in 1859. 
The market and the advertising industry are actually the creations of our freedom. They depend for their existence on our freedom, our choices. Choices that are not actually forced out of us. So the claim that we are simply the victims of big, bad social engineers starts to look a bit less plausible. Isn't it at least worth wondering whether part of the problem might be us? Now, the force of that question is strengthened by the second thing I think we should notice about our world, which is that it is not hard to think of examples of where precisely our freedom from restrictions ends up making us anything but free. The drug addict, lying, bankrupt, disease-ridden and comatose in an empty flat. The pensioner glued, senseless, in front of a poker machine for hours upon hours. The young man, wandering blindly into deeper and deeper sexual perversion in front of his home computer. Maybe... Maybe versions of those scenarios have existed in many ages, yet in ours they have been perfected and multiplied in variety and intensity. In our age, we have discovered painfully that when we are allowed to go our own way, we very often choose bad ways and become utterly addicted to them. You see, what Mill didn't really consider was that freedom might be threatened by far more than just external forces. This is because actually he believed people were deeply rational. Uh, The men and women, as he put it, of civilised societies were capable of being improved by, he said, free and equal discussion. Uh, Now, please do note that by civilised societies, he meant England and Europe and maybe America. Um, You know, his principles, he said, did not apply to, quote, those backward states of society in which the race itself may be considered to be in its non-age. Bummer. And he suggested that, quote, despotism, that is tyranny, is a legitimate mode of government in dealing with barbarians. But give him a break. He was a man of his times. You know, we might have not have done any better, though, kind of a bummer. But in civilised societies, he says, in civilised societies like us, people have, quote, the capacity of being guided to their own improvement by conviction and persuasion. But what if Mill were wrong about that? What if... That understanding of freedom, and indeed our own understanding, badly underestimates what it, what it is that makes people unfree. What if the freedom to go our own way were, was actually just a, another way of being a slave? Well, the Bible tells us that exactly that is the case. That when we are free to do what we want, We are still not free. Not really. Why? Because our wills themselves are enslaved. Our wills themselves are enslaved. 
This is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 8, which is our second reading and it's also printed on your outlines. When he says that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. There is a kind of unfreedom, you see, that is still very much present when all the external limits have been removed. Because it is an unfreedom that lies within us. Our wills themselves are in bondage so that we cannot live as we should. The opening chapters of the Bible, some of which we read in the first reading, they meditate on this deeper unfreedom. The purpose of these chapters is to teach us about the kind of world we live in and what it means to be human and about why things are messed up the way that they are. And they tell a story of how human beings clutched for a kind of freedom by casting off the limits they'd been given only to discover that what it led to was actually a loss of freedom and death. Eve and Adam are commanded by God, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you'll certainly die. But they decide that that limit is an imposition upon their freedom, restricting them from expressing themselves to their full extent. And so they take and eat. But the consequence of this moment of self-assertion is not freedom but slavery. They discover shame and fear and distance from God and they turn against each other in hostility and self-protectiveness. And they begin to live their lives under the shadow of of death. And that is the slavery to sin that Jesus was talking about. The reality that the possibilities of our lives are determined by our own brokenness and our rejection of God, so that although we may be free in many ways, we are not free for God. And so we are not free to live as we were made to. The Apostle Paul sums this up uh, when he says that, he says, he puts it really well in Romans chapter 6, verse 20. He says, the thing we're actually free from is righteousness. That's really what we're free from. We're free from righteousness. We live divided lives where even when we know what is good, we fail to do it. And where we are at war within ourselves so that even our best moments are corrupted by pride. We think we are free, you see, simply if we're free from some external constraints that others have. Simply because we're free to choose our job or our means of transport, our style of jeans or the colour of our iPhone. That is because we're more free than some other people. We're like Jesus' hearers in John 8 who protest. They say, we've never been slaves of anyone. But Jesus saw that they needed to be freed, just like we do, at a much deeper level than just from external constraints. We need to be freed from ourselves, from the bondage of our own wills, from our own broken desires and moral failures and cowardice. Morally, we are like a paraplegic beside a soccer field. 
It may be that nobody is stopping us from playing. Nothing technically is ruling us out. But our backs are broken. And so to say that we're free to play is just ridiculous. And that is the freedom that Jesus offers us. The freedom to rise up, take your mat and walk. As he says to one paraplegic in the Gospel of Mark, effectively. The freedom to live as we were made to. The freedom to, as Paul puts it, I think we've got this on the screen. The freedom to, no we don't. Present ourselves as those Present ourselves to God as those brought from death to life and to offer him our members as instruments of righteousness. That's what, that's what we're freed for by Jesus. And this is a freedom that only Jesus can give because he made it possible by his work of salvation, his perfectly righteous life, the life we were meant to live. His death in which he took upon himself all the penalty that our sin deserved and did away with it. And his resurrection to new life in which he opened up the possibility of life and righteousness. That's what enables Jesus to offer us true freedom. Because by dealing with our sin in his death, he has made it possible for us to share his righteousness and life. That's why he can say, like he did in our passage, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now we see one more thing in John chapter 8 that I really think we should pay attention to. And that is that the way we experience this freedom that Jesus offers is through his words. Did you see that? He says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is the way we experience and share in Jesus' freedom by attending to his word. Paul says a similar thing in Romans chapter 6. I think we've got this one. Next slide. Yes. That was my fault, though. Not the slide person, by the way. There you go. Paul says, Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. The way of true freedom, that is, lies in taking to heart and basing your life upon in faith, an authoritative word, the message and application of the gospel. Freedom, that is, freedom is faith that listens obediently. Freedom is life under the word of Christ. And you see, that is the deepest reason why the idea of an absence of restrictions is not a good description of true freedom. Because true freedom is not ultimately found apart from authority, but actually under it. Not any and all authority, mind you. This is not a kind of apology for all sorts of authoritarian systems. John Stuart Mill was at one level perfectly right to want to resist the ways in which human authorities and social pressures can inhibit freedom. And the Bible is actually just as, in fact, far more critical, because it can say they're demonic, of the ways in which human authorities can enslave people. 
This is why historically, actually, Christians have been much better than people think at protecting certain freedoms. There's no doubt that authority can be the enemy of freedom, but that is not true of all authority because it is not true of Jesus' authority. And this is because his authority, as we just saw, his authority opens us up to truth. Then you'll know the truth, he says, and the truth will set you free. True freedom, you see, is life in accordance with truth. Uh, There's a quote from a British ethicist called Oliver O'Donovan. Uh, It's on your outlines, it's on the screens. Uh, It's a bit of a complex quote, but I think it's really great, captures this really beautifully. We discover we are free, he says, when we are commanded by that authority which commands us according to the law of our being, disclosing the secrets of the heart. There is no freedom except when what we are and do corresponds to what has been given to us to be and to do. Jesus, you see, is the one authority who can address us, who can speak to us with a word that is perfectly fitted for us and that summons us to the fulfillment that we were created for. And so under his authority, we find true freedom because it leads us to life in accordance with truth. God's commandment, you see, God's commandment is not actually an imposition upon freedom, but a service to it. His call on our lives is not a frustrating restriction of our freedom, but rather the path by which we can discover it. That's why in the Old Testament, the writer of Psalm 119 can say something like this. It's on the screen. This sentence sums up amazingly powerfully the Bible's different view of freedom. I will walk about in freedom, he says, for I have sought out your precepts. He knows that God's command is not a restriction on his freedom. It's the way he can discover it. Now, look, that's all a bit abstract, so let me give you a poor illustration of part of what I'm saying. Um, Think of a game of chess. Uh, Sorry that it's chess, but I think it's a good way. Does anybody here play a lot of chess? Good man. Yes. I'm not actually very good at chess, uh, but I like it. I admire it. You'll probably know that. Do you know that there are rules in chess? Yes? Okay, you know, like the bishop only goes diagonally. Yep, pawn goes one step, except at the beginning, kind of thing. Now, it would be possible to see those rules as a restriction on freedom. Why can't I just move the bishop however I want? You know, why not? I I can. That's actually the way my two-year-old daughter plays chess. Uh, And she's victorious, mostly. But of course, all that is really is a freedom not to play chess, but to do something else. But in fact, the rules of the game are not restrictions on freedom, but they're the foundations of it. These few simple rules enable a game of, you may not believe this, but it's true, incredible depth and complexity and beauty. 
And in the... Chess, let us down. But it's true. In a similar way, a funny way, the same is true of God's commands. Certainly at times they feel like a constraint, a restriction, an imposition, but perhaps... Perhaps that's only because we haven't learnt to play yet. Perhaps God's commands are actually an invitation to a richness and fullness of human life that we can barely imagine now. Freedom, you see, comes only when we're in touch with truth. Only when there is a certain constraint laid upon us, the constraint of being shown the reality of the world and our life within it. And this is why freedom can only be fully realized, fully expressed in obedience to Jesus' authority. The word of God which reveals truth and puts us in touch with reality. Because without reality, all we have is an illusion the appearance of unlimitedness, which in fact deprives us of the ability to act well in the world. Okay, well, heading towards the end, how does this, how does this honestly, how does it practically help us think about freedom in our world? Well, let me just quickly suggest two ways it makes a big difference. Firstly, This understanding of freedom stops us being complacent about ugly forms of slavery in our society. Because of the assumptions about freedom that we discussed earlier, I think we tend on the whole to be very alert to social infringements of our liberty, but very blind to forms of individual slavery. We notice and protest when someone else or the powers that be are restricting our liberties. But we're much less sensitive to the ways in which our own desires and choices might be enslaving us. And so we're complacent about things we ought to be outraged about. Such as the ease with which, people, with which we allow people to destroy their lives through gambling and pornography. It's been known for a long time that people can be addicted to gambling. Yet our society has taken this to a whole new level with the proliferation of poker machines. We should have seen that for the ugly exploitation that it is. The irony is that we do know that addiction is powerful, right? Campaigns to help people quit smoking, they don't just send people tracts. You know, they don't just try and convince people with free and equal discussion. No, they try and scare people and, and, you know, do everything they can, convince them, shock them, drug them. Because we know that people making better choices is not as simple as that. And yet we rarely let that thought lead us where it goes. Because we're too in love with our own belief in our freedom, our optimism about our own capacities. And so we complacently allow our government to be funded by sophisticated techniques of addiction designed to milk poor people of their money and so their relationships and their lives. And on the basis of freedom, we make the 
most ugly and degrading forms of sexual perversion available for viewing on devices that children carry in their pockets. If we knew where the deepest challenge to our freedom lies, we would not be so foolish. Secondly, understanding freedom in this way, in the way that the Bible leads us to, would give us a renewed respect for and dedication to the communities we're a part of. The collapse of community in modern society is is often talked about. You know, we hear stories about people who don't know their neighbours and don't know when they die in their homes and people not, you know, looking out for each other when people fall over on the street and stuff. You know what I'm talking about. Now, no doubt some of these stories have suffered from the today-tonight treatment, um, or as my father-in-law calls it, we'll get you tonight. But there's truth behind them. Because our view of freedom is all about the individual. And so we have hardly any room for the kinds of claims to duty and moral and mutual responsibility that used to hold communities together, neighbourhoods, societies, families. Oliver O'Donovan again puts it, he says, the very sense of being owned by some family or some neighbourhood is an embarrassment to modern freedom. But the Bible's understanding of true freedom does not allow us to ignore community like this. Why? Because true freedom is found under the command of Christ and the command of Christ is first and foremost the command to love, to love one another. This, we discover, is what Christ frees us for. True freedom is not actually found in individual self-realization. It's found in being with and for others in love. And that truth prevents us from marginalizing community or seeing it as only good insofar as it serves the individual. Because individuals are for each other. That is what their freedom is for. What a profound effect that would have on our culture if we really got that thought. Well, let me conclude. Let me conclude with a passage from Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, It's on the screen on your outlines. It sums up much of what we've covered today. Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Friends, today we are faced, it seems to me, by a ch- with a choice between two visions of freedom. One in which freedom means the opportunity for self-indulgence. Another in which freedom is for the service of others by faith in the command of God that sets us free. Our age is progressively proving the wisdom of Paul's warning that this option, the former, can only lead to self-destructive competitiveness. Perhaps it is time we considered again the wisdom of the latter, 
The freedom Jesus offers us. The freedom not just to do our own thing, but to live as we were made to, to live gladly in the truth and to rise up and walk before God and for one another. Let's pray. Father, set us free to live in the freedom that Jesus has won for us and transform our minds that we may let what he has done and won for us and the truth of your word shape us and liberate us and make us a blessing to others. Amen.